Psalm 107, we read these words, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that you have redeemed us from the hand of the adversary in whose lap this whole world rests right now, even though this is our Father's world. The world, the flesh, and the devil have joined forces to deceive humanity and to draw so many into the ways of destruction. Father, I thank you that you've raised us up from the miry clay. You've set us on the rock, Christ Jesus, and you've given us the word to be our guide, to be the strength of our lives, to cleanse our souls. I pray that your word will do all of that for us this morning today and that you will be magnified in our midst here. Father, you know each one sitting here today in this room and his or her needs, whatever they may be, or the, or the uh, prayers of their heart. I pray you will meet each of those and that our faith will be strengthened and we will be encouraged uh, to know that you are at work to bring about your good purpose. Father, I pray that in every class this morning where your word is proclaimed, that you will speak powerfully into the hearts of each individual. May all of us leave this place today, this, this campus with a new vision of your call upon us and your empowerment of us. We commit this hour to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like this morning to read beginning in the third chapter of the book of Judges. Now, I'd like to say that this particular chapter, the passages we'll be looking at this morning are very, very powerful, not only in the sense of the intent of the events 3,200 years ago, but also in their application to our lives today. I hope that through the course of the study that we've had over the, depends how long you've been here, weeks, months, or years, <laughs> that we've been discovering how powerfully the Old Testament speaks to our needs. And, and that shouldn't be unusual or a strange thought to us because the God of the old is the God of the new. And he is unchanging. He is immutable. Jesus Christ, we're told in the New Testament, is, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And throughout the Old Testament, we keep reading that, that God is the everlasting, unchanging God. And so what we read in Genesis should not be strange to us from what we read in Thessalonians or Hebrews. It should all dovetail together because it comes from the same author. Today, in the United States and much of the world, the word is not proclaimed as truth because there is this strong belief amongst many that the Bible is simply a human creation. And that, yeah, you might find a few things in there that really come from the mind of God, but both, basically it's just human poetry, you know, sort of like Shakespeare or something. But I, I approach the word as if from beginning to end, this is God's divinely inspired word, that he has superintended its translation and its, uh, its retranslation over the centuries, and that we have the, the truth before us here today. Let's read in Judges chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formerly. 
These nations are the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Label Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to find out if they would obey the commandment of the Lord, which he had commanded to their fathers through Moses. And the sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives, and they gave their own daughters to their sons, to, to their sons, and served their gods. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served the Baals and the Asherah. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, so they sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. And when the, Israel, when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, so that he prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. Then the land had rest forty years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. A very surface perusal of these verses might lead one to believe that the, word, that the Bible is contradicting itself here. Now, of course, you have heard that there have been many, particularly in the liberal camp, who argue that the Bible couldn't be specifically the Word of God, you know, verbally inspired, because there are lots of contradictions in the Bible. And they go on to point out this and that and the other thing, which, if you study completely in context with whatever it's contradicting, completely in context, and you understand the theme of God throughout the Bible, there is no conflict. There is no contradiction. And so it is here in, in this particular passage. It seems to be a contradiction because God had said in Joshua to, to Israel, he had commanded them to drive out all the Canaanites. He said, and I will do that for you. And here it says, but God left some of the Canaanites in the land to test Israel. So how can God promise to drive them all out and then on the other hand say that he left some in the land in order to test Israel? What we have here is not a contradiction, of course, but we have an example of God's love and mercy. Why were all the Canaanites not driven out? Was it because God didn't do his job? Absolutely not. It was because Israel disobeyed. They didn't trust God. They didn't complete the task that they had been given to do. God said, I will drive them out, but you have to do your part. They didn't do their part. So some were left in the land. So God, what does God do? God turns every situation for the good of his people. You intended it for evil, but God brought it for good, were the words of Joseph to his brothers. And this is what occurs throughout Scripture. They had failed to drive out the Canaanites, and so God said, all right, I will use that then to test your faith for me from one generation to the next generation. A new generation had grown up in Israel, a generation that had not experienced the spiritual warfare that was involved in the Exodus and in the conquest of the land. And we need to always remember that above all else, the exodus and the conquest comprise spiritual warfare above everything else. Oh, we read about the tangible things that happened, the attack of the Amalekites, the destruction of Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea and, and, and the Northern Confederacy and the Southern Confederacy that resisted Israel. But behind it all is this great, a massive spiritual war that's going on for the souls of Israel, 
to prevent God from bringing about his plan of salvation, which had been set from Genesis 15 and was in motion all the way through Scripture. God intended to use the remaining Canaanites that were still in the land because Israel left them there in order to teach the new generation of Israel holy war, holy war. Now, of course, the word holy war is badly maligned today, uh, partly because of the crusaders of the uh, 11th, 12th, 13th century, because of the jihad of the Islamic peoples. But holy war is truly what we are in as believers in Jesus Christ. And Israel was just as much in a holy war. That holy war was, of course, to fight against evil in the name and in the strength of God. You, you probably have all, at some time or another, driven down 395 all the way into Southern California. And you know as you come to that intersection of 395 and I think it's Highway 58, uh, it's about the only stop sign you run into in 395 after you get out of uh, Carson City or somewhere along in there. But there's, just before you get there, there's this huge field of mirrors, gigantic field of mirrors, which are used, of course, to generate solar power. Well, what God wants the church to be is a huge field of mirrors to reflect the glory of God into this dark world. And that was Israel's point. That was the purpose of Israel. Israel was to reflect to these surrounding heathen nations who God is and to manifest the reality of his power and and the blessing of his presence in the hearts of his people. And, And so what God is doing here is giving Israel the opportunity to polish their mirrors by fighting against the forces of evil that surrounded them and actually lived amongst them. God wanted to move his people away from a complacent religion. And it's so easy to fit into complacent religion. You know, you you think of Christianity in America today as largely a complacent religion. He wanted to move them to radical commitment to his service, which means active daily participation in spiritual warfare. Whether that simply be by prayer which we like to do at the end of class each each time, I feel that that is a, a 15 or 20 minutes of spiritual warfare where we join our hearts together to pray for these specific needs that have come to our knowledge. Or whatever it might be beyond prayer. There are many other ways by which spiritual warfare is manifest. God was not to be viewed as merely part of their lives, but as the very center of their being. And the purpose for their existence, it was to be preeminent. Preeminent in every aspect of the Israelite community. We have to realize and, and think about the fact that sometimes it takes, it takes us to really sit down and think. Now, the average Israelite was probably not very different from the average person here in America. Oh, the environment would have been different. But they had the same feelings, the same desires, the same emotions. They had family. They had friends. They had uncles and aunts and mothers and all, all the things that we have and, and peer pressure and keeping up Joneses and everything else that uh, comes upon us came upon them too. For, for them to keep God in the center of their being was just as difficult as it is for us today to keep God in the center of our lives. Because we can get caught up in the God, E-I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E, which means God with us. The presence of God in us, the, the opposite of transcendence, which is God way up there and beyond. You know what? The deists believe God was transcendent. He's up there. He sent the world out in space and it's whirling around. He went off and did other things, you know. No, God is transcendent. Yes, he fills the universe, but he's here. 
He's here. He, he said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am present. He's here right now in his power in our midst uh, today. And, and he wants to touch our lives and to speak to us. And, and he wants us to then reflect the reality of the indwelling Christ to all of those who are part of our uh, acquaintances and our family. He wants others to see the blessings that result from total dependence upon him. As I was thinking about this, the passage in Matthew 6, it's a, it's a very well-known passage, uh, came to my mind. And so let me read a, a few verses from Matthew 6, beginning at verse 31. Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or with what shall we clothe ourselves? This is the Y2K question. For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. And of course, he's, when he says Gentiles there, he's talking about non-believers because there were Jews seeking this too, you know, not just Gentiles. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow or January 1st, the year 2000. For tomorrow will take care of itself. For each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen? Amen. <laughs> you know, as you think about that, you, you wonder, where does the health and wealth gospel, what do they do with that verse? Each day has enough trouble of its own. You know, if you're health and wealth, you don't have any trouble. You know, you're healthy, wealthy, everything is wonderful. Because you're children of the king, you see. Well, they need to read about the story of great princes and princesses of history, and they had lots of trouble. <laughs> they weren't uh, healthy and wealthy and wise and everything just because their father was the king. So as, as we think about this passage, do not be anxious, do not be anxious. Anxiety is, is, is part of who we are as, as people. We easily become anxious and, and, and we worry and, and uh, we're, we're fearful. And yet if we remember that the presence of Christ is in our lives, he is here. He is in you, he is in me. As we walk each day, he is there. And, and he carries the burden. And, and his goal in all of this, trials come along, his goal is to polish the mirror so that we more reflect the glory of Christ. And so what he was doing for Israel 3,200 years ago, he's still doing today. Whatever might be the, the scenario or, or the context of what's happening, uh, what God is doing is the same. Now for Israel, part of the test was the continued existence of the two P people, the Philistines and the Phoenicians. The Philistines and the Phoenicians will be a great pain to Israel, more so maybe than many of the other peoples down through time. And one of the reasons was they controlled virtually the entire coastline of Canaan, which meant Israel became in effect landlocked, even though they were supposed to have the sea, and they may have it in a couple of places. But most of the coast was controlled in the south by the Philistines and the north by the Phoenicians. The, the Philistines had been known as the Sea Peoples before they even settled in the area. And the Phoenicians, of course, were known as great maritime people for thousands of years. In fact, some believe the Phoenicians, there seems to be evidence that the Phoenicians were the very first to circumnavigate the continent of Africa long before Bartholomew Diaz or uh, you know, Vasco da Gama or any of those Portuguese who did it 500 years ago. The, the, the Phoenicians did it 2,600 years ago. There's evidence that the Phoenicians were over in South America 
uh, long before ever e Columbus even existed. So they were a great maritime people. How far they got, we don't really know. The Philistines, however, will be particularly, especially in the book of Judges, a pain to Israel. And, and God will use the Philistines. Now the existence of the Philistines was viewed differently by God than it was by Israel. Israel viewed, viewed the Philistines as a gigantic pain in the neck. God viewed the uh, Philistines as his grit for polishing the mirror of his people, Israel. He wanted them to know how helpless they really were if they refused to obey and trust in him. Well, let's read on into the next few verses and see what happened here. By the way, I should mention that as you go back to the third verse of chapter 3 of Judges, talks about the five lords of the Philistines. There were five major cities uh, down the southern part, one of which was Gaza. And as you know, Gaza is still a pain in the neck, even though they're not Philistines today. The Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Sidonians are partly Phoenician up in the north. The Hivites, well, the Hivites were the people that in the beginning were from Gibeah and the ones who said, hey, look, we come from a long ways away. We will make a treaty with you. So Joshua makes a treaty and finds out they're next. They were one of the peoples here, some of which live way up in the mountains of Lebanon. Now, Lebanon is a country that only came into existence in the 20th century. There was not a Lebanon as a separate uh, country called Lebanon until after World War I. Uh, actually up until about almost World War II because that area was made a, a French protectorate or mandate after World War I because it had been Turkish territory and of course the Ottoman Empire was defeated in World War I and they lost all of their uh, territory and that triggered uh, the creation of the modern state of Turkey and getting rid of that whole sultanate thing you know that existed amongst the Ottomans for hundreds of years. It's just fascinating history when you, when you dig into this. And it all really relates in the overall picture to, to what God is uh, doing. But uh, Lebanon was primarily inhabited by the, by the Phoenicians. And Lebanon is made up of two parallel ranges, the Lebanon, the anti-Lebanon range. And then once you get across the ranges, you move out into Syria and you come to Damascus and its great oasis, which is the capital of, uh, of Syria and the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. But, but you have the Lebanon, the end of the Lebanon range, and the end of the Lebanon range is a mountain called Hermon. And so when it refers to all of these things, it's talking about the north primarily. The, you know, the five lords of the Philistines in the south, but it's also talking about the north. And we forget that God had actually ordained that Lebanon was supposed to be part of Israel. But Israel never acquired it. You know, eventually they will overthrow the Philistines. And during David's time, they will acquire most of Lebanon. But for most of history, Lebanon has never been a part of, of Israel, although it was supposed to be according, according to the original parameters that God had given for what the conquest was to be. And so in that third verse, we're talking primarily about the south and the north. In the midst of all of this, God will raise up for Israel a deliverer. His name is Othniel. He is a shofat, a deliverer, which is roughly the meaning of that Hebrew word. In verses 5 and 6, we read that the Israelites disobeyed God's explicit commands against intermarriage with the Canaanites. They had, in effect, integrated with their pagan neighbors. Now, integration is a good word in America today. We talk about integration, and, and, and we largely refer to integration of the races. 
within America, the live and let live kind of mentality. But the integration we're talking about here was not a good thing. It was something that had been proscribed by God because he knew that if they integrated with their pagan neighbors, they would begin to serve the pagan gods. What is very interesting here is you will not find in the book of Judges any reference to Israel because of their integration with the pagans, therefore drawing Canaanites to the worship of Yahweh. We're, we're going to compromise our way and we're going to, uh, we're, we're going to adjust a little to your gods in hopeful, uh, hoping that therefore you will be drawn to our God. No way. God knew that would never happen. Never do people draw, are people drawn to God by compromise. Never are people drawn to God by compromise. That's why we have the liberal church in America. It's a church of compromise. Well, just because the Bible says thou shalt not do that, it doesn't really mean thou shalt not do that. Because overarching all is a God of love and a God of acceptance and a God of mercy. Yes, he's a God of love and he's a God of mercy. But he's also a God of justice and a God of his word. And, and compromising with, with pagan gods in order to draw them to your God is not how it's ever going to happen. I don't think any of those who compromised really believed that would happen. Now, they had been warned repeatedly by God that if they integrated with these pagan peoples, they would be drawn after their gods, the Baal, the Baals, and the Asherim. Probably, I think at first, it was very subtle. They didn't just get up one day and say, I'm tired of worshiping Yahweh. I'm going to go over and worship Baal. Well, certainly that didn't happen for the vast majority. But, you know, it's just a little bit of a compromise each day. Ooh, you know, that guy over there, he's a handsome dude and he's pretty powerful too. I wonder if I should think about causing or making an arrangement for my daughter to become acquainted with this handsome Canaanite over here, you know? Uh, because he has a lot of power, a lot of wealth. And, you know, a little bit of compromise here, a little bit of compromise there. And pretty soon, who's being one to whom? Canaanites being one to Yahweh? Absolutely not. Many people will testify to the fact that they came to the Lord because they saw that the Lord had an absolute standard by which he held all his followers. And it was not a, a standard of compromise, but a standard of obedience. People uh, who really are searching are looking for truth. They're not looking for some watered-down slop, which is often offered. As they compromised, they were drawn, as predicted, into the sensual practices of the fertility cults. And the predictable happened. Did you notice those words in verse 7 of this passage? It says, The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God. What is the fruit of compromise? Ultimately turning of one's back upon what one has at one time proclaimed to be true. Rejected the very God who had delivered them. The very God who had taken them out of, ex, uh, of Egypt in the Exodus to Mount Sinai, brought them in, gave them the land. The very God who did all of this demonstrated this mighty power and they chase after whom? The gods that Yahweh had made look absurd. You know, it's very real today. I mentioned to you that every once in a while we watch um, the biography on uh, channel 33, I think it is. And boy, some of those biographies just make you sad. I mean, it's just one, 
one sad story. Oh, they, people have great fame in the world today. Uh, they're, they're looked to as, as, as very popular people, lots of acclaim, but their lives are just tragic, absolutely tragic. And that is what happens to people who forget the Lord and chase after the Asherim and, and the Baals. They might have public acclaim, but they lose it all. Woe to him, you know, the scripture says, who gains the whole world but loses his own soul. As a result of this, God didn't dally around. Righteous justice of God fell upon his people. And amazingly, what does he do? He brings a pagan king in, Kushan Rishathaim, as a rod on the backs of his people. Now, if you look down through the pages of history, there is hardly anything you can discover that is worse than living in a land that is occupied by an alien army. Because one of the things you discover about alien armies is that they feel as if there is no law, no rule, nothing governing them. I mean, just look at occupations down through history. And what has happened to the population under the occupation army? I mean, just most recently, what happened in Kuwait when the Iraqi army occupied Kuwait? I mean, it was just as if it was open season on the public. And, and you as a soldier occupying, do whatever you want to, and, and you're not held accountable. And the tragic things they discovered after the Iraqis were driven, I mean, these are Muslims dealing with Muslims. By the way, in the Quran, it's forbidden for Muslims to fight Muslims. So, you know, we're not the only ones who compromise and, and, and disobey the truth. Even Muslims disobey their own truth. And, and, and here it is for Israel. Now, we have to read into this thing that Kushim Rishanthaim came and he occupied the land for eight years and his troops were all over the land and, and they paid tribute and, and they were oppressed by the armies of this, this, of this king, this general. And it wasn't nice for Israel. You know, just think, when you have an occupying army, you don't dare let your wife or your daughter outdoors. And so it was tragic for, for the people. Yet God allowed this to happen. God allowed this to happen. Israel was about to learn that secure possession of independence and territory is not to be taken for granted. God gave them Canaan. Does that mean automatically Canaan will always be theirs and they can sit back and, and do nothing and just enjoy the through the land and do whatever they want and it will continue to be theirs? No. It would be a slow and painful process, but God would make it clear that he was their only hope for peace and prosperity. He is the only hope. And as you look at the great men and women of our society, that is the people who are held up to esteem, most of them do not know peace and prosperity in the true sense of the word. Oh, they may have lots of money, but they aren't prosperous as a person in their souls and their spirits. They just go from one tragic situation to the other. And, the, and how often are they addicted to alcohol or drugs or whatever? You know, it's, it's just speaks the truth of Scripture. Now, who is this guy, Kushan Rishathaim? This is the only place we ever hear about him in Scripture or history, for that matter. Well, the Hebrew term, first of all, we need to understand where it says there in verse 8 that the Lord... Uh, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cush and Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. Now, first of all, we need to understand that this word translated Mesopotamia in Hebrew is Aram Naharim, 
which means Syria of the rivers. <coughs> Syria of the rivers. So it doesn't necessarily mean what we think of as, as Mesopotamia. It may be the Valley of the Tigris-Euphrates, but it may not also be the Valley of the Tigris-Euphrates. Uh, it could be the Damascus area or some other part of, of greater Syria, which is that large area uh, to the north of Israel and to the east of Israel, which includes, uh, you know, most or a big hunk of not only modern Syria, but Iraq and Lebanon and parts of Turkey and all of that is, is part of the ancient greater Syria. Why did this happen or how could this happen in the political sense? <clears throat> well, up until about the time of the conquest, the great power in this whole portion of the world was, had been Egypt. The Egyptian New Kingdom, beginning in the 16th century before Christ, and especially in the 15th and 14th centuries before Christ, um, Egypt had become a mighty power and pushed its borders farther than their borders have ever been historically before or after. The borders were pushed clear up to um, modern-day Turkey and all the way down into modern-day Sudan. And Egypt was, a great, was the greatest source of gold in the ancient world. They had um, mighty armies uh, that uh, fought on all fronts. But now Egypt is already in decline because we are probably in the 12th century BC here in, when this event occurs. And Egypt's already in decline. Weakness in the throne, as you know, uh, the Egyptians practiced incest in the royal line. As a result, you often had weak uh, rulers, mentally uh, weak especially. And as a result, uh, Egypt was, was in decline. So, who was Kushan Rishathaim? Well, the various options are that he might have been Hittite, but that's not very likely uh, because the Hittite kingdom, which occupied modern-day Turkey, is also in decline at this time. He might have been a Syrian or Babylonian. That's very possible because both of those empires were beginning their early phase of development. Most likely, given the term Aram Naharim, he was a Hurrian king. The kingdom of Matani was located in the upper Euphrates River Valley and over into modern-day Syria. And it, it was headquartered there on the middle course of the Euphrates River and uh, was probably the greatest kingdom in that part of the world at that time with the decline of, uh, of Egypt. So the Hurrian kingdom is probable here that he came from that particular king. But whatever the case, he marched from the northeast down into the land that we know as Canaan along the Fertile Crescent and occupied the land. Now, we read that Israel had forgotten God, but had they completely forgotten God? I don't think so, because it's revealed by the fact that they cried out to him in their distress. Isn't that interesting? It's kind of like the person who, who can swear like a drunken sailor and, and, and be as, as obscene as possible, and yet you get him in a foxhole and mortar shells are dropping all around him and he's about ready to be murdered, killed, you know, right there. He cries out to God, save me and I'll be a good boy, you know, whatever. A person may live as if God doesn't exist, but in the, when, when it comes to the moment of possible demise, suddenly, you know, God is, is real to them, or at least they hope he's real to them. And so here is Israel. They've been serving Baal. They've been serving, bowing down before the, the pillars and the groves of the Asherim. And now they call out to Yahweh. You know what this illustrates to us? illustrates one of the reasons why God brings distress and trial and tribulation into the lives of his people. If life were idyllic, 
Can you even imagine that? <laughs> if life were idyllic, every day you woke up and you bounded out of bed, you know, oh, wonderful day, song in your heart, you know, not an ache or a pain in your body, uh, you sat down to a glorious breakfast, you know, and the birds are singing and you're ready to go to work and it's a wonderful day at work. That doesn't fit, huh? Well, you know, if, if we lived like that, who would need God? Who would need God? <laughs> when, I, when I was studying this, Luke 8 came to mind. Because I think it really illustrates this. I mean, it's again uh, a well-known story here. Luke 8, beginning of verse 22. <clears throat> now it came about on one of those days. <laughs> Have you ever had one of those days? Like seven a week? <laughs> that he and his disciples got into a boat. And he said to them, let us go to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. And a fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake. And they began to be swamped and to be in danger. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And being aroused, awakened, he rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were fearful and amazed, saying one to another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. I don't know if we can really put ourselves, I mean, because we know that we've read the whole scripture, and so, you know, we, we just take it for granted. Well, he's God, you know. But, you know, they were learning this. What does it mean to be Emmanuel? You know, they, they weren't all, of course, yet convinced that this was Messiah. But this was a powerful expression in that direction, you know. Shalom! And everything just, you know, imagine now there's a tornado coming, tearing up the plant. God says, Shalom! Cheep, 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 you know, gentle breeze. <laughs> While the sailing was smooth, the disciples didn't need Jesus. But when the storm arose and they were in danger of drowning, they had nowhere to turn to salvation but Jesus. That's why storms occur in our lives. God wants us to keep turning to Him because He knows if it's too smooth sailing, we won't turn to Him. We'll trust in our own strength. We won't even be remembering that we need Him desperately every hour. We don't sing many of the great hymns anymore, but there's one of them you'll probably remember, I need thee every hour. I need thee every hour. You know, sometimes we forget we need Him every hour, every moment. These storms that come into your life and into my life are actually expressions of God's love. They would never have witnessed the power of, of the creating, Creator Jesus if the storm hadn't come up and they'd been, you know, desperately in anxiety over their lives and to have Him stand up and calm the whole thing. I mean, can we even imagine the impression it made on them? People are standing in absolute terror and all of a sudden everything just turns around in a split second at the command of Jesus. We wouldn't know how wonderful He is or how powerful He is if it weren't for the storms that rack our lives. So rather than cursing the storms, we must thank Him for the storms because in them He demonstrates the truth of who He is. At first, the Israelites, I think, didn't realize this, of course, and they ran to their bales and they ran to their asherim and they cried out and did all the things you're supposed to do. Later on, they will actually, the scripture says, burn their own children to these gods. 
When it turned out, however, that this was futile, they remembered the God of their fathers. It's amazing how he comes to mind when there is absolutely no other option. How long did it take them to turn and wake up? How long did they continue to pursue help from Baal and Asherah before they realized it wasn't coming from these sources? Was it in the first year of the oppression? Remember the passage says they were oppressed eight years. Eight years. Now those of you who remember World War II, World War II was only four years long for the United States. Eight years is of course double that. Eight years of oppression. Did they begin to wake up in the first year, the second year, the third year, the fourth year, or when? How many years did it take? Well, even if they woke up in the first year, it still was an eight-year oppression. God did not deliver them until eight years had gone up. Did it take the whole eight years before the majority began to seek the Lord, were willing to repent of their apostasy? Or was the Lord simply driving home the point? As you've heard so often expressed, you know, if God sends tribulation, then you've got to tribulate a while, you know? And how long does he want us to tribulate? How long was it that Israel had to tribulate? Whether they began to repent in the first year or the eighth year, there, were, there was eight years of tribulation. The Lord cannot be ignored without serious and lasting repercussions. Whatever were the reasons, the upshot of this whole thing is, or the upbeat part is, that no matter how far God's people have strayed from Him, if they turn and repent, He hears. Isn't that a wonderful truth? No matter how far we stray, if we turn and repent, He hears. He hears. And he has rescued some awful people. Of course, we're all awful, but I mean, whom from the outside appear awful, even in the world's definition of awful. Can you imagine what it would have been like if in April of 1945, suddenly God had touched Adolf Hitler and he had become a man of God? I mean, I don't think we can even conceive of that because we view him as, as, as evil incarnate. But God could have done that. What would have been the impact of that? Would it have straightened out all the consequences of World War II? Absolutely not. The disaster was already accomplished. Germany was in ruins. Six million Jews had been massacred. No matter, the consequences were there. God, however, we must remember, answers our prayers in His time according to His plan, place of Israel, and our place in these situations is to repent, to believe, and to be patient because he will make it right in his time. He will restore the years that the canker has eaten in his time. Now, God often, or at least biblically, would answer prayers miraculously. God answered the prayer of Hezekiah and Isaiah 400 years later as an enemy army was in their land and as Jerusalem was threatened with being overwhelmed by this mighty army, the mightiest army that part of the world had ever known. God answered that prayer miraculously and he sent an angel and wiped out the entire army without any human agency whatsoever. And that's one of the great fantastic stories of Scripture. But more often than not, 
God will answer with human agency rather than without human agency. And in this case, God uses a human. He raises up a deliverer whose name is Othniel, and he makes him the leader of Israel. He becomes the military, political, legal leader of Israel, and he leads them to victory over the forces of Cush and Rishathaim. Now, if you look at this, you, you know, it would almost be as if uh, Luxembourg arose and defeated the forces of Nazi Germany. Who's this guy, Othniel? You know, and, and what is Israel? They've been occupied by the alien army for all these years. And so this little band of guys gets up and they defeat this mighty army. Well, they do so in the strength of God. Now, what is God's purpose in all of this? To demonstrate to Israel that he is the only one who can save them. Without him, they are totally lost. And it is not by uh, their strength, but by his power that they will be delivered. All of this, I think, helps us to understand that mankind is helpless without God. And the flip side of the coin is that God is absolutely sovereign in all things. No matter how bad they may be in the midst of World War II in its blackest hour, May of 1942, God was still sovereign. And, and God would bring his purpose about. Not because we were a godly nation and Japan was an evil nation or that Britain was a godly nation and Germany was an evil nation, but because in the overall scheme of things, God had a plan and he would work it out and he would deliver his people. Well, we don't have time to uh, complete this, but next Sunday we'll look at what God did, uh, who this man Othniel was, and what it is that God did through him, and how important it is to understand the role of the Holy Spirit in each life in accomplishing God's will.